We have a weird homicide. In a scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religious rite. The police released their only suspect in the mass murder of film star Sharon Tate and four others. Late last night, another bizarre murder in Los Angeles, the second in two days. The owner of a small supermarket chain found in his home, his head covered by a white hood, a meat fork stuck in his chest. His wife, 38-year-old Mrs. Lino LaBianca, found in the bedroom dead, her back brutally cut by a whip. He's inside, two bodies outside. They came and went, and the number varied from 20 to 30. Police said they were a pseudo-religious cult. People who worked on the ranch said they were heavy users of drugs. Were lurid. The movie actress was Sharon Tate, 26. The others were a male hairdresser, the heiress to a coffee fortune, a writer, and a boy just out of high school. A wandering band of members of a so-called religious cult with a leader they called Jesus has had three of its followers arrested in the investigation of the murder of Sharon Tate and six others. Those arrested are two women and one man, and the Los Angeles police said they would ask murder indictments against several others. Five women are being held as material witnesses. They called themselves the family. Los Angeles has had another multiple murder. Last night, a middle-aged couple was stabbed to death in a case that has striking similarities to the mass murder Saturday of actress Sharon Tate and four friends. We're taking dolls and stealing cars, and just they just sit around all day in peace, and that's about it. And they went around collecting garbage and had that for dinner and went to the store once in a while, and that was about it. They just left and got loaded. People who lived with Manson on the ranch and in the desert denied that they were a violent group. They called themselves the family. Charles Manson and the family. Before we get going, as always, I have my normal plugs. If you'd like to follow me on social media, that'd be Facebook, Instagram, MeWe, YouTube. Just search for either Ian Totten, author, or The Deathcast. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter and Truth Media, just search for Corpus Creek. If you are interested in signing up for the show's mailing list or feel like dropping me a line, just go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com and click on either the sign up button or the drop us a line tab. If you enjoy what it is I do here on the DevCast, you'd like to make a donation or buy me a cup of coffee or a pack of smokes, just click on the donate button while at CorpseCreekPublishing.com. If you are interested in purchasing any of my novels, you can go to tinyurl.com backslash tot-books. If you are interested in becoming a Patreon member, go to tinyurl.com backslash dcpatreon. For as little as $2 a month, you can become a patron of this show and help offset the costs of production. Please consider going to wherever it is that you find your favorite podcasts, subscribing, and sharing the show on social media, as well as leaving a five-star review. They really do help get the show out there to new listeners. Speaking of five-star reviews, I have a slew of them this week. However, from what I can see, there is only one that someone has taken the time to write out. I'm going to attempt to read the name. I hope that I am not butchering it too badly. Joanala Schley said, I just listened to this podcast today for the first time. I love it. I would recommend this podcast to anyone who likes true crime stories. Very nice content. Keep it up. 
Alright, now that all the plugs are out of the way, get yourself something to drink, find a nice chair, kick back, relax, close your eyes. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. When we left off last week, we were discussing how Sharon and Roman Polanski had gotten access to the house on Cielo Drive. We also discussed the rumors that have been out there for years now concerning Sharon possibly be being filmed by her husband while engaged in sex acts with other individuals, and the rumors that not all of these encounters were quite consensual from Sharon's part. We also discussed how Manson and his family were moving around at this period of time, and also how the family was really starting to grow. During this period of time, we're talking the spring of 1969, Sharon Tate was in London with Roman Polanski, who was continuing to work on a film. And while there, she had her birthday. The British tabloids obviously made a big deal of this, pointing out that she had been gifted a moon color Rolls Royce by her husband, and Sharon went on the record with one of these publications stating, We're taking it back to Hollywood to be with our 17 cats, three dogs, and the new baby. I can't wait to get back to start on the nursery. Also, while there, Sharon took out an ad in a local paper in an attempt to find a British nanny to come to the States and take care of her child. This is the way of the privileged class, as it were. They're all fine and dandy for having sex and making babies, but when it comes time to rearing the children, especially during this period of time, child raising was not something that they wanted to do, and that obviously Sharon was not interested in partaking of. Something else of interest that arose during this time, or rather failed to arise, is the stories that came out much later concerning Roman and Sharon's love life. Apparently, the sight of his pregnant wife absolutely nothing before Polanski, and he found himself to be impotent and attempted to make love with her. One friend stated while discussing the Polanski's marriage, he treated her like she was a piece of excess baggage. He was even pointedly cruel to her in front of others at times, calling her a dub hag and criticizing her whenever she had expressed an opinion. When it came time for Sharon to go back to Hollywood, Roman decided to stay behind. He was re-editing a film by the name of A Day at the Beach while also continuing to work on the script for his film, The Day of the Dolphin. So Sharon ended up coming back to the States pretty much by herself. She was too pregnant during this period of time to fly on an airplane instead had to take a transatlantic cruise on the Queen Elizabeth II. One also has to surmise that during this period of time, Roman was engaged in numerous extramarital affairs, something that you have to imagine Sharon was well aware of and more probably than not upset about. However pregnant Sharon may have been, she was able to fly cross-country upon reaching the States. When she arrived at Los Angeles International Airport, she was met by Jay Sebring. During this period of time, Manson and his followers were already well ensconced in the spa ranch. For those of you unfamiliar with the Spa Ranch, it was an old 
ranch that had been used very prominently in movies starting back in the late 1940s before eventually falling to the wayside as westerns fell out of fashion in American culture. The owner, an 80-year-old man by the name of George Spa, it has been said allowed Manson and his followers to stay at the ranch in turn for them conducting tours as well as doing daily chores and helping with the upkeep of the ranch. There are other stories out there, the most prominent among them being that Squeaky Frome had been tasked with servicing George on a continuous basement in order to keep the family in his good graces. Now, a couple of things happened during this period of time concerning the family, really in rapid succession. The first involved a drug dealer named Bernard Lotsapapa Crow, who Manson had attempted to murder using, I've heard various recountings of this. Some say he stabbed him, others say he attempted to kill him with a samurai sword that Manson was known to carry around with him. In any regard, man, this happened in an apartment, and Manson later saw the man whom he believed he had killed and was apparently spooked by seeing Lotsa Papa still breathing. The next known act of violence perpetrated by the Manson family concerned an individual by the name of Gary Hinman. Hinman was an aspiring musician, among other things, as well as a college graduate who owned his own home in Topanga Canyon. Some reports state that from this home he manufactured and sold mescaline. Hinman had become associated with members of what would end up becoming known as the Manson family as early as 1966, with several of them living in the Topanga Canyon home of Hinman. As the story goes, Bobby Busala purchased 1,000 tabs of mescaline at $1 a pop from Gary Hinman. Bobby ended up selling these only to discover that they were of an inferior quality. Some stories state that Bobby ended up getting complaints from his customers and he decided to go back to Hinman and demand his money back. On July 25th, 1969, Manson sent Bobby Bussola over to Hinman's house. Now, there are stories out there. Many of these come from prosecuting attorney Vincent Pugliosi, whose narrative has to be considered iffy at best, as we will get into later when we discuss the whole nonsense behind the helter-skelter narrative that he pushed. Nevertheless, the prosecution later contended that the Manson family believed that Gary Hinman was in possession of upwards of $20,000, the results of an inheritance, and that he was keeping the money inside of the house. Going along with Bobby Busala were Susan Atkins, you remember Sexy Sadie, and Mary Brunner both of whom are rumored to have had relations with Hinman in the past. Bobby later stated that had he known what, what was going to happen, he never would have brought Susan and Mary with him. 
and that Manson had persuaded him to take the girls with him with the idea of they would be able to help calm and persuade Hinman into giving up the money. Upon arriving at Hinman's house, Bobby demanded his money back only to discover that not only did Hinman not have any money, the home that he was telling people was his own, in fact, belonged to someone else. It's at this point that Bobby Busala began to physically assault Gary Hinman, believing that he was lying to him. Apparently, Atkins and Mary Bruner took part in some of this, but when it became apparent to Bobby that Gary was not going to be forthcoming with anything, he contacted the family and asked for some backup to come over to help him convince Gary that he needed to give over the money unless he wanted something tragic to happen. Manson arrived the following day with Bruce Davis in tow, and upon learning that there was no money, he cut part of Hinman's ear with the samurai sword that he habitually carried around, as well as slicing him on the cheek. At which point, according to Bobby, he realized just how horrific what it was that they were doing, and he confronted Manson, demanding to know why he had assaulted Hinman in the fashion that he had. According to Bobby, Manson told him, quote, unquote, to show you how to be a man. The story goes that after Manson and Davies left, Bobby and the two women began to clean Gary's wounds using dental floss in an attempt to stitch up the cuts that Manson had inflicted upon him. Busala stated later that as the day wore on and he began to realize that there was no good way out of this situation, he stated, quote, I knew if I took him to the emergency room, I'd end up going to prison. Gary would tell on me for sure, and he would tell on Charlie and everyone else. It was at that point I realized I had no way out. Bobby contacted Manson a number of times in the ensuing hours before deciding that Gary Hinman needed to die. According to a San Diego Union-Tribune article which originally reported on the crime, Gary Hinman was tortured for days on end before being stabbed to death. At the site, police found words written on the wall in Hinman's blood, political piggy, as well as a paw print also done in Hinman's blood. You may be wondering, why is this such an important murder in the pantheon of everything that Manson and his family did? Remember when we get to talking about the Tate LeBlanc-Bianca murders, that the words political piggy had been written in blood on the walls inside the Topanga Canyon home where Gary Hinman lived and was murdered. There is some speculation out there that the murders of Sharon Tate and the LaBianca family were in fact an attempt by Manson and his followers to take the heat off of Bobby Busala by showing that in fact the killer of Gary Hidman was still on the loose. And the reason why this is important is because before the Tate LaBianca murders took place, Bobby would end up being arrested. This arrest took place on August 6, 1969, when Busoil was found asleep in Hinman's broken-down Fiat, which was on the hot side of Route 101 between San Luis Obispo and Atuscadero. Some more important information
information from this crime concerns the entire helter-skelter narrative that was put forth by the Los Angeles County Prosecutor's Office, in which it is held that Manson was hoping to start a race war, hence the political piggy being written on the wall as well as the paw print as, according to Prosecutor Vincent Begliosi, Manson wanted this murder to look as though, quote-unquote, black revolutionaries had committed it. This is refuted by Bobby Lucilla, who stated that it was in reality nothing more than a drug transaction gone wrong. During the period leading up to the murder as well as after Manson and his followers were involved in numerous criminal activities, one of the most famous being Creepy Crawly, which is when they would go and break into people's house in the middle of the night, move things around, or simply stand there watching over the person as they slept, oftentimes with the homeowner waking up to find these dirty hippies standing above them before they would vanish into the night. Something else that they were doing, which was known to the Los Angeles County Police Department, was stealing cars and bringing them back to the spa ranch, at which point they would be converted into dune buggies. Some of these were sold, while others were kept for the family's own use. Now, we're going to discuss briefly the entire helter-skelter narrative as posited by Prosecutor Vince Bagliosi. I want you to keep in mind that a lot of this has been debunked as simply being nothing more than bullshit that Bugliosi came up with because it read well in the paper as well as allowed him to draw attention both to himself and to the prosecution of these crimes. According to the idea, Helter Skelter was something that Manson began to believe in during the late period of 67, 68, which he came to the conclusion that a race war was coming in America, in fact, worldwide, and that it would be blacks against whites, and that he and his followers would be able to find a hole in the desert that would allow them to go down into the center of the world, where they would hide out during this race war, and the subsequent nuclear fallout. After which, Manson and his followers would come back out of the hole to become the new messiah who would oversee the reconstruction of society within his own image. I know there's some people out there shaking their head thinking that this is absolutely insane. It's got to be a conspiracy theory. It is not, I can assure you. If you go out and find the book Helter Skelter, which to this day is still the best-selling true crime book of all time, Bugliosi lays it all out in there. The problem with that particular narrative is, of course, the fact that it wasn't true. Uh, he constructed this after talking to members of the family who had been arrested and swore until his dying day that it was the God's gospel truth, despite mountains of evidence to the contrary. Further, the idea for Helter Skelter is said to have come from the Beatles' White Album. If you've ever listened to it, it has songs on there such as Helter Skelter, Sexy Sadie, 
and numerous others. Now, members of the Manson family have stated that Charlie, as well as they themselves, became fixated on this album, album but none more than Charlie. It is said that Manson began to believe that the Beatles were talking to him through this album and that he could only receive their messages through subsequent listenings of the albums. We will get back in a moment. From Ian Tiny, best-selling author of The House of Silver Dolls, The Blood Gods Trilogy, Maggie, a book which New York Times best-selling author Keith Elliott Greenberg has called a classic detective story, well-crafted, and a supernatural vortex. Maggie, the name was burned into Lieutenant Carl Jablonski's mind like a brand and had been since the night of the fire. He doubted he would ever forget that night or how she had danced in the flames of her burning home. Maggie, who was she and why did no one in Kaya's Crossing seem interested in talking about her or her family? These were questions without answers, quandaries that drove Carl on as he explored the darkest of the town's secrets, desperate to unravel the knots that tied everything together. Maggie, Carl felt haunted by a visage, even as the local reporter, George Murphy, told them of the blood-soaked history that lay along their path and the horrors that it held. None of it seemed real, and yet it was. The sacrifices, the screams, the pact with the nameless ones, and the hell that she had endured. Maggie. Hers was a crime begging to be solved, and he and George are the only ones with enough heart to do it. The real question is, will they survive long enough to do it? Maggie, available 11, 30, 2021, in paperback and hardcover. Ebook pre-orders are now available at Amazon.com. Only from Corpse Creek Publishing. All right, we are back. So, Manson supposedly believed that the only way he could continue to get these messages was through subsequent listenings of the album, and the message that he was receiving was not only that he was the Messiah, but that there was a race war coming, and he needed to help get it going by committing these murders starting with the murder of Gary Hinman, and then continuing on with the murders that he and his followers are most famous for. And yes, boys and girls, we are at that point of the Kate LaBianca murders. As discussed earlier in this episode, as well as earlier episodes, there is a lot of speculation as to why the Tate household was targeted on the night of August 8th and into the morning of the 9th. Vince Bugliosi contends that it was all about Helter Skelter. Well, another narrative that it had nothing to do with that. It was simply an attempt to try and get Bobby Busola out of jail. My own personal opinion, just based on everything that I have ever read concerning the crimes, and I've read quite a bit, not everything that's out there on these murders, but I have read a lot on them, as well as done some, a lot of my own research. Bobby Busola may have been a contributing factor. I do not believe that he was the 
overall reason that the house on Cielo Drive was targeted. In fact, I think that his arrest just was the icing on the cake as far as Manson and the family were concerned. I believe Manson, who had been unceremoniously dropped by Terry Melcher and Dennis Wilson, had been stewing over what he felt was a betrayal by the two men for, you know, seven, eight months at this point. And that Bobby being arrested was the lever that kicked him over the edge and he killed two birds with one stone as it I think he'd already decided well in advance that something was going to happen to the people who were living at Cielo Drive, and that it was specifically designed to send a message to both Terry Melcher and Dennis Wilson that, hey, you guys effed up, you messed with the wrong guy, you need to reconsider things before something bad happens to you as Again, I think Bobby's arrest was, you know, secondary to all of this. On the night of August 8th, Tex Watson drove Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Linda Cassabian to 150 CLO Drive. Now, according to later interviews with Tex Watson, he was instructed by Charles Manson to go to the house and quote-unquote destroy everyone's inside and do it as brutally as possible. He also instructed the women who went with him to do whatever it was that Watson instructed them to do. Inside of the house, Sharon Tate, who was eight and a half months pregnant, was hanging out with her former fiancé, Jay Sebron, who apparently was still a very close friend to her at this point, although I suspect there was something more going on there. Wojciech Krakowski and his girlfriend, Abigail Folger, who was a heiress to the Folger's Coffee Empire, we have talked about in subsequent episodes about how Kachowski and Folger were more likely than not involved in some form of drug sales, and it's very likely that the two of them, under the guise of staying at the house with Sharon to keep her company during the later stages of her pregnancy, were using this house as a front for their business There are stories out there that Manson may have been burned by the two of them, which is another reason why he targeted this house. However, there is no concrete evidence out there linking Manson to the drugs that Folger and Wachowski were selling. At any rate, Shortly after midnight on the morning of August 9th, Tex Watson climbed a telephone pole near the entrance of the gate and cut the telephone lines leading into the house before parking their car and walking up to the home. Believing that the gate may be alarmed or possibly electrified, they climbed an embankment to the right of the gate and entered the grounds. While they were making their way up the hill to the house, a car approached them from further up on the property. Watson ordered the women to get into the bushes and hide. Well, he stepped out into the driveway and flagged the driver down. The driver of the car was an 18-year-old by the name of Stephen Parent. Parent had apparently been at the house talking to the caretaker, William Garrettson, 
who was interested in a radio that Parent had with him in the car and that he was selling. Watson brandished a twenty-two revolver at Parent, who, according to Watson, begged him not to hurt him, at which time Watson lunged at Parent, slicing him with a knife across the palm of his hand that severed tendons and tore the watch away from Parent's wrist, after which Watson shot him four times before going and rejoining the girls inside of the bushes. Upon getting back to the women, Watson ordered them to help him push the car further up the driveway so they could not be seen from the street, after which they reached the house and Watson cut the screen out of a window. Watson then climbed through the window that he had opened and let Atkins and Cronwinkel in through the front door. According to Watson himself, he noticed the body of a man lying on the couch asleep. This ended up being Frykowski, whom he awoke by kicking in the head. Again, according to Watson, upon being awakened, Frykowski asked who he was, and Watson is reported to have said, I am the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. While he stood and kept watch over Frykowski, Atkins and Krenwinkel went through the house and rounded up the other inhabitants. I want to warn anyone that ha is listening, the things that I'm about to describe are extremely graphic and brutal, and if you are not really interested in hearing what happened during the murders themselves, you may want to fast forward a 5 to 10 minutes ahead. According to Susan Atkins, she found Sharon Tate sitting in her bedroom on the bed, and she just really strolled into the bedroom, which somewhat startled Sharon Tate, but not enough that she thought anything was up. Atkins got Sharon Tate to come down into the living room, at which point they began to tie Tate and Sebring together by their necks using rope that Watson had brought with him. Um, now you can find pictures of this online, and I more likely than not will be posting these pictures on my various social media accounts such as Instagram and Facebook. They drew the rope up over a beam in the house and fashioned nooses out of it which they attached to Sebring and Tate's necks. They also tied their hands behind their backs. Apparently, Jay Sebring began to protest the intruder's rough treatment of Sharon Tate at this point as Sharon was heavily pregnant, and Watson, without blinking an eye or missing a beat, simply shot him. Then Abigail Eric Folger was led up to her bedroom to retrieve her purse, which had an estimated $70 inside of it, which she gave to the Manson family killers. Somewhere all during all of this, Frykowski was able to escape his bindings. Apparently his hands had been bound with a towel. And he began to tussle with Susan Atkins at this point, who stabbed him in the legs with a knife. Rykowski was able to get to the front door before Tex Watson approached him and began to beat him in the head with the gun, breaking the handle of the gun. And this is actually something that is very important with this case, as... The police were able to recover the shattered parts of the handle at the crime scene, and it would be some time before they actually recovered the gun itself. 
Now, all of this took place on the front porch. He's getting beaten in the head. Watson begins to stab him before shooting him twice with this busted gun. While all of this is going on, Linda Kasabian is down by the gate over near Steve Parent's car. And she hears these sounds and moves back towards the house. According to Linda Kasabian, she informed Atkins that someone was coming, and she did this in an attempt to stop the murders from taking place. That comes directly from Vincent Bogliosi's book, Helter Skelter. This is one of those pieces uh, where, you know, it's conjecture. How did she get from the gate down at the bottom of the, the driveway up to Steve Parent's car and then into that? You know, close enough that she's able to call out to Susan Atkins a, without alerting the man in the guest house that something was going on, and B, also without going inside the house itself. I personally believe, and again, this is just my opinion, she more likely than not heard the sounds and made her way up to the house, probably saw what had become of Frykowski, and went inside, horrified by what she'd seen she attempted to get Atkins' attention and say, hey, we need to get the hell out of here. That is assuming that that particular part of the story actually happened. What we do know happened, however, is that Abigail Folger is able to escape from her captors at this point and flees out a bedroom door to the pool area with Patricia Cronwinkle in hot pursuit. Cronwinkle tackles her and begins to savagely stab her. As she's stabbing, according to Patricia Cranwinkle, Abigail Folger told her, I'm already dead. In the end, she ends up being stabbed an estimated 28 times. Frykowski, who, if you'll remember, was out on the front porch, was apparently still alive at this point, and he attempted to get out of there still. This is after being stabbed multiple times, beaten in the head, and shot. At this point, Watson finishes him off before going and helping Patricia Quernwinkle to finish off Abigail Folger. Rakowski was stabbed 51 times. He had also been beaten around the head 13 times with the gun to such an extent that the barrel was actually bent. Back inside of the house, Sharon Tate pleaded with her captors to release her or at least to take her hostage so that she could have her child. There are numerous different tellings of this story. Tex Watson contends that it is he himself who actually took the life of Sharon Tate, while Susan Atkins states that it is she who actually murdered Sharon Tate. With Atkins reportedly stating, Woman, I have no mercy for you. This is from the grand jury testimony that Susan Atkins gave, at which time she claimed that it was meant more to reassure herself than it was to frighten Sharon Tate. Other tellings have it that Susan Atkins stated, Bitch, I have no mercy for you, before stabbing Sharon Tate in a frenzy. Again, according to Watson, quote, Susan Sadie bragged about in jail and one of her attempts to get attention was convinced that it was she who had killed Sharon Tate. But his suspicion was not true. It was my hand that struck out over and over and over until the cries of mother, mother stopped. Suddenly it seemed very quiet. It was over. 
at this point, according to Watson, he instructed the women that they needed to leave some type of a sign that Manson had decided that they needed to leave some kind of a calling card. According to Susan Atkins, she did what she did next to draw attention and a parallel between the murder of Gary Hinman and this crime in an effort to get the police to believe that the murderer of Gary Hinman was still out there. This is a very famous part of this particular murder as Susan Atkins wrote on the front door, Pig in Sharon Tate's Blood. After which point, Tex Watson and the girls fled the house. Now there's some discrepancy over what happened next. Some stories state that the got into the car covered in blood, drove a distance before changing and tossing their blood-soaked clothing down off of a hillside, while others state that they did this at the house. They got out of their blood-stained clothing, left, and then drove to an area not far from Tate's home and discarded the clothing. They also discarded the broken gun that had been used in the murders and then made their way back to the ranch. All the while, Los Angeles continued to sleep unaware that quite possibly the most notorious murders in not only California and Hollywood, but in American history had just begun. We are going to leave the story at this point, allow you to digest, allow me to prepare to tell further of the Manson family's crimes on the following night when they go to the home of the LaBiancas. Again, if you enjoy this show, please consider liking and subscribing wherever it is you get your podcasts. Leave a five-star review. Share it on social media. Go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com. Sign up for the mailing list. Consider giving a donation and buying me a cup of coffee to help offset the cost of producing this show. Or if you really enjoy the show, go to tinyurl.com backslash dcpatreon and sign up for as little as $2 a month. Until next time, the Deathcast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Stay morbid.